You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Upon a time, there was a village with a road that went straight through the centre of town. One day, something awfully strange happened. God walked down the road and she was beautiful. She wore a long, flowing robe. And on top of her head, there was a wonderful hat. All the people stopped to stare at God as she walked by, and they kept staring until she disappeared into the distance. Boy, God sure was beautiful, said one man. And what a beautiful blue hat she had on. Yes, God was beautiful, said the woman from the other side of the street. But it wasn't a blue hat she was wearing. It was a red hat. You are wrong, said the man. It was definitely a blue hat. No, you are wrong, said the woman. It was definitely a red hat. As the two argued, others joined in. Soon the whole village was arguing. All the people on one side of the road were certain that God was wearing a blue hat. All the people on the other side of the road were certain that God was wearing a red hat. People got mad and started screaming at each other. Finally, the people got so angry that they decided to build a wall that went straight down the centre of town. From that point on, the people on one side of the wall were enemies with the people on the other side of the wall, and they never spoke to each other. On one side of the wall, the people built a church where they worshipped a god that wore a blue hat. And on the other side of the wall, the people built a church where they worshipped a god that wore only a red hat. Many years passed and the people were still enemies. Then one day, God came back through the village. She was smiling 
and balancing on top of the wall. The people had built this wall many years ago. This time, she was wearing no hat at all. All the people ran to the wall and cried, You must settle our argument. Yes, said one man. The people on that side of the street say that when you walked through this village many years ago, you were wearing a blue hat. But we know better. We know that you were wearing a red hat. So tell us, God, what colour was your hat? God looked puzzled for a moment and began to scratch her head in thought. I think I remember walking through this village many years ago, said God, and on that day I was wearing my hat that is blue on one side and red on the other. And saying nothing more, God continued walking down the street until she disappeared into the distance. It was very quiet for a moment. Suddenly, there was the sound of one child laughing. Then another child started laughing and another. Soon, the whole village was roaring with laughter. Everyone was laughing because they realised how foolish they had been. As the sound of laughter grew louder and louder, the wall began to shake and crumble until finally it came tumbling down to the ground. For many, many years after that, the people told the story of God's hat and laughter had torn down the wall between a divided and a foolish people. Thank you, Susie. And now we come to a part of our service where I get to light another candle. So we have an opportunity to acknowledge joys or concerns which we might be feeling. There are no others. I'll light one more candle, partly for the joy of such a beautiful day, very pleasant today, but also those joys and concerns in our hearts which we're not up to expressing right at the moment. Please join me in contemplating what we've heard. There are always concerns, disasters happening around the world, untold suffering, and it is affecting us that there is so little we can do in some respects. We do what we can. But we also experience joy at our family connections, the conversations we have with loved ones, those special relationships. Let's be thankful for all the good things we have. Now we have a reading. I'll ask John to come forward for that. Thank you. Today's reading comes from Professor Bart D. Ehrman, Jesus Interrupted, revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible and why we don't know about them. Professor Ehrman writes, One of the most amazing and perplexing features of mainstream Christianity 
is that seminarians who learn the historical critical method in their Bible classes appear to forget all about it when it comes time for them to be pastors. They're taught critical approaches to scripture. They learn about the discrepancies and contradictions. They discover all sorts of historical errors and mistakes. They come to realize that it is difficult to know whether Moses existed or what Jesus actually said and did. They find that there are other books that were at one time considered canonical, but that ultimately did not become part of scripture. For example, other gospels and apocalypses. They came to recognize that a good number of the books of the Bible are also pseudonymous, written in the name of an apostle by someone else. That, in fact, we don't have the original copies of any of the biblical books, but only copies made centuries later, all of which have been altered. They learn all of this, and yet... Pastors are, as a rule, reluctant to teach what they learned about the Bible in seminary, and to which I'll add a rhetorical why. Thanks, John. And now a hymn, hymn 130 in the Green Book. Today I'm talking about early Christianities. It's not a typo. I refer to more than early Christianity, singular, the Orthodox Christianity which gained momentum in Rome and was validated by Emperor Constantine as he was going into battle in 312 AD. I take you back to a time of plurality in religious experiences, in a faraway place at the edge of the empire. The Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, stretched from what is now Portugal to Ireland and Turkey to Egypt. Judea was not a particularly prosperous province, but it was an important overland trading route, joining Egypt with the Greeks. It was a frontier province facing against the sometimes hostile nations to the east. Most of the locals in Judea and Samaria, either side of Jerusalem, were Jewish. Among the occupying political and military forces, many worshipped the Roman pantheon of gods, which were drawn from the Greek gods of Olympus. Many worshipped Mithras, the sun god, and for many it was sufficient and safe to just worship the emperor. The empire was quite tolerant of religious beliefs with one crucial proviso, that due homage and respect be paid to the emperor. The few who were literate in the eastern Mediterranean region mostly read Greek. 
This was a legacy from previous centuries when the area had been under the Greek Empire before the Romans grew in strength. The works of the ancient Greek philosophers were available for those who sought them. Among the Jewish population, there was diversity of belief, just as there are many variations on the theme of Christianity today. There was a substantial following of the rabbis who operated and safeguarded tradition in the Jerusalem temple. It was known as the second temple because the first one had been destroyed when the Babylonians invaded hundreds of years before. There were other Jews for whom worship at the Jerusalem temple was less important. For example, those who lived further away from the city of Jerusalem. There were also ascetics who lived apart from the crowd in order to practice a self-denying discipline. Some were apocalyptic in the sense that they believed that God would intervene in the world imminently to destroy everyone but the righteous, allowing the creation of a better world here on earth. Contradictions in Jewish scripture reflect differences in belief among different Jewish groups, differences which were current 2,000 years ago. For example, the Jewish authors of Job and Ecclesiastes make it clear there is no life after one's life on earth. On the other hand, the second book of Kings, also Jewish scripture, tells us that Elijah was taken up to heaven, alive, which could be fortunate or unfortunate, depends which way you look at it. In the context of this Jewish world, with its variations in understanding to some extent, various local rabbis emerged with their own take on the central tenets of Judaism. The preacher we know as John the Baptist was one of these. At the River Jordan, which presently runs along the border between Palestine and Israel on one side and Jordan on the other, he preached repentance of one's selfishness, symbolised by baptism in the waters of the river. The notion of ritually cleansing immersion in water had been part of Jewish practice for hundreds of years. It is entirely conceivable that the young Jew from Nazareth, Yeshua, I call him by that Hebrew name, sought out this charismatic preacher, John the Baptist, and undertook the ritual of baptism. From there, Yeshua went on to prepare himself for his own ministry, culminating in his death almost 2,000 years ago. Yeshua's preaching caused some commotion at times. The local Roman leadership may have been threatened by claims among his followers that he was a Messiah, which implied that he would lead a Jewish rebellion. At any rate, Yeshua was crucified in the same way that the Roman administration dealt with troublemakers and criminals of all kinds. We can deduce that the teaching of Yeshua was one step removed from mainstream temple Judaism. Speeches attributed to Yeshua demonstrate an apocalyptic message, and it seems he alleged that at least one faction of the temple rabbis was hypocritical. The disciples, as described by the author known as Mark, did not seem to initially understand the significance of Yeshua's mission. Halfway through the narrative in the book of Mark, it occurs to Peter that Yeshua is a Messiah, but his messianic destiny was still not understood by the disciples. They would have expected a Messiah to be one who would create heaven on earth. This would mean not only creation of a just and righteous society, but also freedom from Roman occupation. They must have been terribly shocked at his crucifixion if they believed him to be one of the messiahs spoken of by the prophets. After the death of Yeshua, 
it seems that leadership of the group fell to his brother James, or Yaqub. They carried on as Jews who practiced Mosaic law, including male circumcision, and a belief in one God, while seeking to live out the instructions given by Yeshua, keeping his memory and his teachings alive. The book attributed to Matthew was significant to them, minus the opening verses about the virgin birth. They were later dubbed by the Orthodox Christians as the Ebionites, meaning the poor ones. And now I'd invite Margaret back for a musical interlude. Some beautiful music, Ave Maria by Caccini. Thank you. 
Thank you, Margaret. The book of Acts in the Bible tells a story of the journeys, tribulations and successes of the most successful promoter of Yeshua, that is, Shaul. We now call him Paul. His Hebrew name, Shaul, and his Greek name, Pavlos, or in Latin, Paul, reflects his grounding in both Jewish and Greek culture. He was an observant Jew, but also educated in Greek culture. For those of you who don't know the story, Paul is said to have had a vision of Jesus, and after that, instead of seeking to persecute Christians, Paul took on a mission to spread the message of Jesus as he conceived it to the non-Jewish world, which in the context of the Mediterranean world meant the Greeks and Romans. Historically, we have a fair idea about the message that he was promoting, since scholars agree that about half the letters attributed to Paul in the Bible were actually written or dictated by him. One of the curiosities is that with the letters of Paul, just as in the Quran, the books are organised from largest to smallest, because at the time of compilation, it was difficult to know what the chronological order was. But if you are interested and ever get the chance, it's worth reading through in chronological order to see the development of thought. It seems Paul was immediately at odds with the leaders of the Jewish group of Christians in Jerusalem over the significant question of whether converts should be bound to the laws of Moses. I have a rather graphic description of that on the screen. The conflict of views had practical implications. For example, there was a dispute whether followers of Yeshua could eat with non-Jews. Paul was relaxed about the kosher food laws. Paul could also see, no doubt, that conversions may well be very limited if he insisted on the Jewish requirement of male circumcision. One popular teacher of the second century, Marcion, took Paul's rejection of Mosaic law to heart. Yet Marcion did not accept the Trinitarian view of Yeshua. He taught that beneath the true God was a demigod which created this earth and humanity. As you would expect, he was opposed by the Christians in Rome. Paul preached that the Christ, the Messiah, had arrived. Salvation was available to all believers, a message which still left plenty of scope for argument and interpretation. Questions were asked by Jews and non-Jews alike, particularly about how God could be manifested in a human being. Various solutions were actively debated over the following 200 years or so. One explanation was docetism, that Yeshua only seemed human but was actually a divine being throughout. This was opposed by the Roman church because, among other reasons, it meant that there was no real human suffering on the cross. Therefore, there could be no atonement for the sins of others. There was also the adoptionist view that Yeshua was made a god by the god, whether it be at birth or baptism or resurrection. Tertullian, in the second century, expounded the concept of the Trinity, that there are three persons in one God, 
but this did nothing to settle the matter at that time. Sibelius was a priest who taught in the early 200s that there was only one God who could manifest in three different modes. There was also the concept of separationism promoted by Bishop Nestorius in the early 400s, that there was an eternal Christ being which inhabited the human Yeshua, then continued in eternity after the death of the man. Two separate entities, the view long endured in the churches of the Middle East. The point of this review of Christological positions is that it was not a settled question for hundreds of years after the life of Yeshua. The Christians of this period couldn't simply refer to the New Testament to resolve these questions because there was no New Testament. In fact, apart from books named after Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there were books named after Philip, Mary and Thomas, and the list goes on. There were dozens of these accounts of Jesus and his teaching. It wasn't uncommon in those times for an author to seek instant credibility by ascribing authorship to an eyewitness or famous figure. Paul presented Jesus as a God and Saviour, but the theology wasn't clear when he was writing in the 50s and 60s, only a generation after the death of Jesus. In the letter to the Galatians, for example, Paul wrote that salvation was by faith alone, yet he also repeats a traditional Jewish saying that people will reap what they sow, which suggests that salvation will depend upon good actions. By the time the book in the name of John was written, another generation after Paul's teaching, a Christian theology was being developed which reflected some of the core ideas of Greek philosophy. The word was God, and the word became flesh. The Greek logos in this context meant more than an element of speech, not literally just a word. It represented the philosophical notion of reason as an expression of nous, or nous, which was mind in its most abstract form. In other words, abstract Greek philosophical concepts were co-opted by Christian proselytizers so that the concept of Jesus the Christ would appeal to those familiar with that Greek philosophical background. Many Greek schools of thought assimilated the message, even the divinity of Jesus, into their teachings. Valentinus, for example, teaching in the mid-2nd century, recast Pauline teaching in light of Platonic philosophy. He taught that the supreme God was unknowable, but this world had been created as the project of a demigod. Yeshua had esoteric teachings which could help humanity escape from the toils and snares of the world. And we're not talking about a fringe group here. Valentinus first established himself in Rome and had followers throughout the Eastern Roman Empire. In those first centuries of what we call the Common Era, there were many teachers in the Greek philosophical tradition who were generally rounded up by many scholars under the heading Gnosticism. Gnosis is just the Greek word for knowledge. The name came about because these groups tended to claim a special knowledge of the divine. Many of these groups assimilated the new teaching of Yeshua as it came to them. It made sense that if this Jewish teacher knew God, then he too must have had special knowledge. 
The Roman Christianity, which adopted a Trinitarian view of Jesus, jostled and competed for hundreds of years with firstly the Jewish Christians and then later with the multiplicity of Christian and Gnostic schools throughout the Eastern Roman Empire. Why did the Roman view win out? They had wealthy backers that helped. They used and replicated the administrative network of the empire. The critical advantage that they had over the Jewish Christians was a barrier to entry, which was very simple and easy to overcome. Literally anyone could become Christian and be promised eternal salvation. Psychologically, they offered the comfort of a personal relationship with a God through an eternal Jesus. The Gnostic schools couldn't compete with that. They weren't organised in a network to the same extent. Their God was purely abstract. A degree of distaste with the material world wasn't a bestseller. And they could be seen as elitist, requiring demonstrated discipline and possibly initiation rituals to draw closer to God. What happened to the Jerusalem Christians? It didn't help that Yeshua's brother Yaqub was executed in 62. More significantly, the Jews rebelled against their Roman overlords in 66. With considerable success initially, it took three or four years before the rebellion was brutally crushed, resulting in near extinction of the Jerusalem population. A further Jewish revolt in 132 resulted in another massacre of the Jerusalem population. Although a few of the so-called Ebionites survived outside the bounds of the Roman Empire, there could be no competition against the spread of Pauline Christianity. In summary, I've undertaken this overview of the first few centuries of Christian belief to stress just how many pathways to the divine there are, even within the Christian tradition. Unitarians need have no anxiety at lacking dogma. With love and respect for our brothers and sisters who cherish Christian dogma, it is evident that much of the Christian dogma was drawn up long after the crucifixion of that exceptional Jewish preacher, and sometimes based on books which were written generations after that crucifixion. But that doesn't leave us empty-handed. It leaves us with the wisdom and encouragement that we can derive from the message, the essential teachings of Yeshua himself, a topic to which I shall return another day. Let us finish with a final song. So I invite the terrace singers back for a rendition of the tune, It Ain't Necessarily So.
I just want to stress, please, that in exploring these alternative ideas, mainstream ideas, the intent is not to detract from others, but rather the pursuit of truth in religious history, as much as anything else, takes us where it takes us. And if we commit ourselves to that search for truth and act with kindness, gentleness and gratitude, we can't go wrong. Thanks for coming today. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.